Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Passage taken from Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And this particular section in Matthew 5 is often referred to as the Beatitudes. A couple comments on the Beatitudes. First of all, the word Beatitudes actually is not, does not appear in Scripture. It's a Latin phrase meaning blessedness. And apparently that sounds more pious than um, the blessed, so they call them the Beatitudes. And if you have a modern translation of the Scriptures, uh, the word are, blessed are, the poor in spirit, is italicized. And that means that the word are does not appear in the original text. It's an addition intended to uh, provide clarity in the translation for English readers. And so the original text would have sounded more like blessed the poor in spirit. And what that, what that suggests is a more compelling sense of now. Those who are poor in spirit are blessed now as well as in the kingdom of heaven. It's been suggested that the Beatitudes are a kind of reboot of the Ten Commandments. During Jesus' time, the uh, Ten Commandments had been, um, uh, had been sort of fallen out of favor, I suppose, with the Jews, uh, were largely um, um, neutralized by contemporary interpretation. And so the, it's possible that the Jewish culture had fallen so far from the meaning of the Ten Commandments that Jesus um, reestablished, upgraded, if you will, even though there are only nine Beatitudes. So you could say, Jesus often made the comment, um, you have heard that it has been said, and you could and insert the Ten Commandments. But I say unto you, and then you could insert the Beatitudes as a kind of a clarification. The teaching of the Beatitudes would have likely come across as very shocking to the people of Jesus' day. Uh, nearly all of the Beatitudes fly in the face of conventional wisdom, not only then, but now as well. Jesus' listeners were looking for the kingdom. They wanted to be free from Roman oppression. They wanted to be wealthy. They were looking for their own version of social justice. In looking at our society today, we could reasonably come to the conclusion, I believe, that we have come as far from the Beatitudes as Jesus' original listeners were from the Ten Commandments. And uh, so it's, it's um, worthwhile from time to time to have a look at them. Our culture seems intent on finding happiness. Um, Beatitude, blessed, is often interpreted as happy. Robert Schuller, in the book in the 80s, uh, published a book on the Beatitudes. He called them the Be Happy Attitudes. The blessedness that Jesus referred to in the Beatitude is not the kind of happy that you and I typically think of as Americans. What we typically think of has to do more with circumstances or status or place. Beatitudes are not about the happiness that comes with a trip to Disneyland. The Beatitudes are not about the happiness that comes with buying a new car. 
the happiness that Jesus refers to is a peace that passes all understanding. It's a contentment that is eternal and survives beyond our current circumstances. So what does it mean, by definition, to be poor in spirit? Number one, you know it's to be poor in spirit is to have a realistic perspective of who I am before a holy God. You could substitute the word rational or reasonable. Realistic perspective of who I am before a holy God. Jesus gives a great example of what it means to be poor in spirit in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, beginning at verse 10. He describes two men who went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this publican. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not so much as lift his eyes into heaven, but smote his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he that humbles himself will be exalted. Number two, and you know, it's a natural outcome of being poor in the spirit is humility. Now, it may be a prerequisite, it may be necessary to be humble before you are poor in the spirit, but certainly if you are poor in the spirit, the person will be humble. In the book of Isaiah, there's a depiction of the prophet Isaiah and an encounter with, with God, with the person of God. Isaiah said he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Imagine um, the king of kings um, on his throne with the train of his robe going out into the north, into the uh, entryway and out into the parking lot. Huge presence. And over here is the seraphim. The seraphim is, uh, is a being with six wings, and he covers his eyes with two, he covers his feet with two, and with two he flies. And over here is another one. There's one on each side of this great and majestic throne. And the seraphim is saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And imagine as we're sitting in this room with this spectacle happening, the pillars of this building rocking back and forth at the sound of the voice of the seraphim. And the whole room is filled with smoke. How would you react to that? Pretty intimidating. Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the middle of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Number three in your notes, to, to be poor in spirit is to be conscious of my own depravity to be conscious of my own depravity or my own sin, if you prefer that word. And Luke chapter 5 is another great example. Simon Peter and his brothers have been fishing all night, and they haven't caught anything. And so Jesus appears on the bank, and he says, there's a hole over there. Take your nets and drop them in that hole, and you'll catch some fish. I don't know how often you've been around veteran fishermen, 
but my observation is they don't take kindly to advice from novices. But this was Jesus, so what are you going to do? So they go over to the hole in the, in the water, and they drop the nets, and up come a teeming bunch of fish, so much that they're breaking the nets. They have to call their partners over and to haul the net into the shore. It says in uh, verse 8 of Luke 5, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at, his, at, at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. To be poor in spirit is to have a realistic perspective of who I am in the presence of a holy God. And when I have that perspective, I'm conscious of my own sin. Given these examples, one might be tempted to think that, well, in order to be poor in spirit, you had to live in Bible times, or you had to have a personal encounter with God. In the 1980s, my wife Sue and I were attending a church in Yakima, Washington. It was Westside Baptist Church, and one Sunday it was our privilege to host a speaker named Joe Aldrich. Now, if you've been around churches for a while, that name will be familiar to you. But he was kind of an up-and-comer at that time. And I'd heard the name, but I had never heard him speak. And so when I came to the service, I sat right there in the front row. Mr. Aldrich was a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary and had resumed responsibility as the president of what was then Multnomah School of the Bible. He was a great theologian and highly in demand as a speaker. And he'd recently published a book called Lifestyle Evangelism. If you're serious about evangelism, you need to read that book. And you go online and you look it up, and there's been a dozen other books that have been developed from the premise that he establishes in this book. The book was very successful. It flew off the bookshelves at Christian bookstores. And it remains a classic to this day. I'd never heard of Joe Aldrich before that message, and I don't know what he spoke about. I don't remember what he said. But what I do remember is the benediction. I'm sitting in the front row here. The sermon is over, and he prays the benediction. And as he's praying, he's praying John 15, the passage about the vine and the branches. And he confesses before this congregation that Apart from Jesus Christ, he can accomplish nothing of value. It's a remarkable statement. This was a man who was successful in every means by which success is defined. He was a theologian. He was a businessman. He was a leader. He was um, a great teacher and now an author. And so as he's um, praying, I heard his voice crack sitting down in the front here, and I violated the rule that my mother gave me about stealing a peek while people are praying in church. And I opened one eye, and I looked up, and he was weeping. And it wasn't just an isolated tear. It was a stream of tears coming down both cheeks as he was confessing his need of Savior to accomplish anything worthwhile. He regained his composure by the end of the prayer, and I suspect very few people in that room knew what had gone on. But I was astonished 
this successful man confessing his need for uh, his dependence on Jesus Christ, the usual consequence of people who are successful like that, human nature being what it is, is to get cocky and to become convinced that we accomplish these things of our own merit, of our own power, because of our own talents. But here he was, confessing his utter dependence upon the Savior. When I think of what it means to be poor in spirit, I think of Joe Aldrich in that particular example. Number four in your notes, those who are poor in the spirit attract the blessing of God, attract the blessing of God. Consider the story of Jacob in Genesis 32. He was in a desperate situation. He had burned his brother Esau some 14, 15 years earlier, and now he was going back to face him. He had accumulated family and wealth, and he was at risk for losing all of it. And he divided his, his troop as he was going. And it's, the scripture says that that night that Jacob had a struggle with the angel of the Lord and a wrestling match that lasted the entire night. And when the dawn approached, the angel said, I got to go. You got to let me go. And J- Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. In the end, he received the blessing. He appealed to God for his blessing and God granted it and used him in the establishing the nation of Israel. In the story of Gideon, God makes a special point that Israel, and by extension you and I, will accomplish nothing of consequence absent his divine grace. And 2 Samuel 7 reveals the story of the selection of King David, a man after God's own heart who was the least of the tribe of Judah and the youngest of his father's sons, David's lifelong pursuit of God as revealed in the Psalms became the qualifier for King David to become king in Israel. By the way, are you thinking perhaps this morning that there is something in your life that disqualifies you from being poor in the spirit? David was an adulterer and then a murderer. Wasn't a particularly good father. His family was a mess. And yet, as he had paid the consequence of his sin in his life, he remained a servant of God and does so to this day. Number five in your notes, we influence our poverty in the spirit by how we think by how we think. Near the conclusion of Paul's great book of doctrine in the book of Romans, commencing in chapter 12, he transitions to the subject of, okay, we've learned all these things, we know all these things theologically, now what? So what? What, is it, what difference does it make? And he, and he makes that transition by using the word therefore. When I was growing up, we were told that when you see the word therefore, you should see, you should ask why it's therefore. And it's a transition, it's a conclusion. So beginning in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. 
And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Transformed. Changed. In the literal uh, Greek, the word is metamorphosed. Metamorphosed. And meta meaning change, morph meaning shape. Um, his, he's uh, ad, encouraging us to have our mind change its shape. It's the same word that we use in describing the transition of a caterpillar to a butterfly, metamorphosis. Revelation of God as revealed in Scripture should transform us, should make us... Each time we come into this room and we hear the, the Scriptures and we hear the application of the Scripture, we should be different people when we leave. Later in Philippians, Paul gets more specific. In chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely things that are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate, think on these things. Philippians 4, 8. A person who is poor in spirit meditates on the scripture. Under 5, letter A, to be poor in spirit is to meditate on God and his creation. To meditate on God and his creation. When I see something extraordinary, it becomes an opportunity to meditate on the presence and the person of God. Several years ago, my wife Sue and I acquired an adult foster home. And it's uh, on a farm. And this farm has a pond. And on this pond are ducks. Now, I'd never had any experience with ducks before, so I was kind of intrigued by the prospect. So I began to feed them to make sure that they'd stick around. These are kind of ducks that could, they were mallards, so they could leave anytime they wanted. So the first spring, we were blessed with a batch of ducklings. Now, that's probably not the right term. Maybe it's a brood, maybe it's a gaggle, I don't know, somebody will tell me. But we had a bunch of little ducklings. And I began to watch these little ducklings on the pond, and it was interesting to me how the mom would just push them in the pond and they began to swim expertly. Never had any practice. They took to it like a duck to water, as they say. And then uh, later, uh, when the mom would make a certain noise, they'd all gather around her as a kind of defense mechanism. Who, who taught them that? How did they come to, to know that? Later, as they got bigger and they got spooked, they would fly, they would take off, and usually in unison. And they were beautiful and graceful, and they looked like a squadron of fighters in, in a kind, of, kind of a synchronous motion. It was a beautiful thing to see. How did they learn how to fly? What design in their person made it possible for them to know and the landing sometimes were kind of comical at first. Apparently, that takes a little learning. But the takeoff was beautiful. And it occurred to me, as I watched them, to be moved by the power of God. This little duckling had everything that he needed inside him to acquire and utilize energy. He had built in his structure, in his DNA, all the information that he needed to know to use to swim and to fly. 
and to process food and ultimately to reproduce. All of that is contained in this tiny little fuzzball on the pond. To consider that was to reflect on the amazing creative power of God. The invisible attributes of God are clearly seen in his creation, being understood by the things that are made. His creative power and Godhead has been revealed to such an extent that to deny God and his existence is inexcusable, Romans 1. You could do that same exercise millions of times over, considering all the different extraordinary creative products that God has has made. Number B, under five, to be poor in spirit is to pursue the knowledge of God on his own terms. On his own terms. I can't, I don't recall how many conversations I've had with people who, in their arrogance, who will say, I don't believe in God because of this failing or this fault. I don't, if I were God, I would do it this way. It's the hubris and the arrogance is, is appalling to me as a believer. Now, a person could be excused if reading the book of Job, you were to conclude that the book of Job was about suffering. It's a key, it's a dominant theme in the book, to be sure. The story begins with Satan approaching God and receiving permission from God to, to torment Job. And the, the text reveals that within a matter of hours, he lost his family and he lost everything that he owned. And then later in the story, he loses his own health. And he's so miserable that his wife suggests to him that he should just curse God and die. Well, later, three friends show up. And they have a conversation that reminds me of kids arguing in the back. Job, you're suffering because you sinned. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. Goes on for 35 chapters. A sheer cure for insomnia. Finally, in chapter 38, God shows up. And he begins with a question, a great question. Who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Gird yourself up as a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. And then he commences in a sermon that's laced with wonderful sarcasm. Where were you when I described some creative act? Tell me if you know. It's wonderful. In the end, Job has no reply. Put my hand over my face. Shut my mouth. I have nothing to say. What's the point? The point is, you are God, and I'm not. You are God, and I'm not. Wise counsel for people of our own day. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge God on his own terms. He is God, and I'm not. I imagine God sitting in his throne in heaven, mocking and laughing at the pseudo-intellectuals positing wisdom, absence of the knowledge of God in our day. Number C, under five, to be poor in spirit is to avoid complaining. Is to avoid complaining. The lesson of the book of Job is not about suffering. It's about the sovereignty of God. When I complain, I am in effect arguing against God. 
If I believe that God is sovereign and I chafe at the circumstances that occur in my life, I'm in effect telling God, step out of the way, I'll take this one. I can do this better. Complaining, I believe, is as close as we can, be, we can come as believers to blasphemy. No wonder that God reacted so harshly to the nation of Israel when they complained in the desert, confining them to the desert for 40 years. No wonder he reacted so harshly to Moses when he complained and was banished from entering the promised land. This is a hard one. I know that I personally violate this principle frequently. But if I desire to be poor in spirit, I will confess that sin promptly and live a life in gratitude to the blessings that God has given to me. Number D, under five, a person who is poor in spirit cultivates a heart of gratitude, cultivates a heart of gratitude. Sue and I had a pastor friend up in Washington years ago by the name of Gary. Gary was a great guy, a good friend, still is. And I recall in conversations with Gary when the subject had come up of what he deserved. You really ought to order that steak, Gary. You deserve it. You really ought to take that vacation. You've been working hard. You deserve it. You you ought to buy that new car. You've been working hard. You deserve it. Gary had a standard reply. He'd say, what I deserve are the fires of hell. Anything north of that is grace. It was a great comment, and it amused me because it was a complete, utter, stone-cold conversation stopper. What do you say to that? How do you respond to that? (laughs) It was hilarious, but it was also true. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that because we have sinned, that we are deserving the wrath of God. Anything that we have in life is a blessing that God has given to me. Number five, or number six, uh, the benefits of living uh, life poor in the spirit. Well, one is given to us in the text. The principal benefit to living life poor in the spirit is to inherit the kingdom of God. This is a promise that's given to us in the text, and it defines kingdom. Uh, the definition, I should say, of kingdom has often been applied as grace and glory. Grace in this life, glory in the next. Our pastor D has done an excellent series on the book of Hebrews that I believe is available, if not in the office, it might be still online. And uh, I would, I've mentioned last night, I intend to use this series uh, in, our, in Africa. For, we're uh, commencing a class on business, teaching African Sierra Leoneans how to operate a business. And a big part of that is recognizing their responsibility to society as a business person. And Hebrews is a great example, is a great uh, way to accomplish that. Number B, um, to live life poor in the spirit is to be absolved of guilt. To be absolved of guilt. This is the other side of the coin. When talking about being poor in spirit, we've mostly talked so far about the humility. But there's another side 
of hope. To be poor in spirit gives me a better life now and not just a hope in the future. To be poor in spirit is to have a realistic perspective of who I am before a holy God. Ephesians teaches us that it is by grace that we have been saved, and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul asks, what do you have that you did not first receive? And if you have received it, why do you boast as though you had not? It's a very profound question. What is it that convinces me that I am so special that I can accomplish anything absent the grace of God? Conversely, how is it that I allow myself, that I permit myself to become ensnared by the lies of Satan who wants me to be convinced that I've blown it, that I will never accomplishing anything of value for God? There's nothing that I can do that is worthwhile. Compare that to Jesus, who has numbered the very hairs on your head, who, according to Revelation 3.20, stands at the door and knocks, desiring fellowship with each one of us. Jesus, who told us before he left the earth that we would accomplish even greater things than he did. To be poor in spirit is a coin with two sides. One is humility and the other is hope. When I live my life with a desire to be poor in spirit and I have a realistic perspective of who I am before a holy God, I become aware of my total dependence on God for anything that I wish to accomplish, not only in this life, but in all of eternity. Conversely, when I acknowledge him as sovereign and confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness and to relieve me from the damaging emotional baggage that comes with guilt. To be poor in spirit is a coin with two sides. One is humility and the other is hope. When I have a realistic perspective of who I am, before a holy God, number C, I am free from the negative effects of depression. The negative effects of depression. We live in a society that is saturated with depression. I had a physician friend in Washington, a psychiatrist, who said that if he could work his will, he would crop dust the Pacific Northwest with Prozac, which was a medication for depression at that time. He was getting writer's cramp from writing so many prescriptions. When a people are created in the image of Jesus who left heaven to come to earth and lived a sinless life and suffered and died and was resurrected for you and me and millions of other people. We are told that depression is a chemical imbalance in the brain, and I believe that's true. It appears, however, that science is finally catching up with the scriptures with regard to how, that, how to control that chemical imbalance. The scriptures teach us that as a man thinks, so is he, both Old and New Testament. The scriptures say that we should focus our mind 
on the things that are pure and excellent and praiseworthy. Philippians 4, 8. A group of neuroaffective researchers, affective meaning pertaining to behavior, published an article in the Journal of Affective Disorders. I paraphrase it here on a slide, their conclusions. There is a growing and definitive evidence or conclusive evidence of the relationship between SGT, self-generated thoughts, that's what you think about, and its correlation to depressive orders. Their conclusion was the more depressed you, the more negative things that you think about, the greater propensity there is to, to be depressed. And conversely, the more often you focus your mind on positive things, on, on the scriptures, for example, the less inclined you are to be victim to depression. In other words, what we think about alters the chemistry in our brain. When I focus my mind on heaven and the scriptures and how God has revealed himself in creation, I give testimony and worship to the mind and to the heart of God. I consider his desire for fellowship with me and I have worth and promise not because of anything I have ever done. It is completely, utterly, totally an expression of the grace of God, but that gives me value. That gives me purpose. That gives me a life worth living. The hope side of that coin is a preventative as well as a remedy for depression. Finally, number D, under six, when I live my life with a desire to be poor in spirit, I, am, I have a realistic perspective of who I am before a holy God. I am unleashed to live a life of purpose to his glory. We are his workmanship, created for good works, that we should walk in them, prepared before the foundation of the world, before, before we were ever born. We have a design for purpose in our lives. I have purpose in ministry to honor God with my life. I have purpose in my pursuit of God to know him and to enjoy him forever. And I have purpose in my life to share that knowledge with other people in my sphere of influence to his glory so that they may live a life poor in the spirit and have a realistic perspective of who they are before a righteous, pure, merciful God. God be praised. God be praised. We're grateful, Lord, for this time together. We thank you for the manifestation of your spirit among us. And I pray as we contemplate this great beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit, that we will be different people for having considered this great truth. And perhaps there is someone within this hearing of this message this morning that has never thought about it before. And I just pray, Lord, that you, by your spirit you would magnify the teaching of your holy word, that it would not return void, but would accomplish the purpose wherewith you have intended it. I pray, Lord, that each of us would live a life in full recognition of who we are before a holy God, that we can accomplish nothing absent being tapped into the vine, of reading your scripture, of being involved in prayer, of seeing you in creation, and thinking pure and righteous and holy and just thoughts. Dismiss us now with your peace, we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen.